0: Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. This week, I'm delighted to have the artist Paul Kindersley on the show. His work spans drawing, performance, film and ceramics. With faces and bodies painted like canvases, adorned in handmade costumes, Paul's work teeters on the edges of the absurd, beautifully poetic, grotesque and playfully provocative. Discover how art and life merge for Paul and why embracing silliness is crucial in his creative process. Tune in to learn how he pushes boundaries with discipline and establishes frameworks for creative collaboration. Don't miss out on the golden nuggets in this episode. Hello, Paul. Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. How brilliant that you're with us. Thank you for coming.
1: Oh no, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to see where this conversation is going to go. Yeah. To
0: me too. So I guess for our listeners, would you do us the honor of introducing yourself first and your work and where you live and work?
1: Um, well, my name's Paul Kindersley, which is probably on the on the thing you clicked on anyway. Um <laughs> And I'm an artist and i it's always been difficult for me to know what words to use because I initially didn't like the name artist because I was like, oh, it's so much pressure comes in it. But then I changed my mind that artist was such a great word because it means absolutely everything and nothing. So, um, yes, yeah, so I'm straight <laughs> going straight in for that. But um, I always think the key to my artwork and artwork in general is often storytelling. So I often explain my artwork in those kind of uh, that kind of parameters of a storyteller because my output has um, everything in it from performance to film, to drawing, to uh, a lot of collaboration with other people, to ceramics. And it can seem like a lot of different things. And But to me, it all just seems like part of one big story that's ever changing, ever translating between media. So it's often difficult to explain Because in my head, it's so simple. And I'm just like, oh, I'm just making and being an artist. But Yeah, I think,
0: well, we're going to put a pin in that because I think um, the idea that your work is all one thing, I think is really important and uh, actually really inspiring. And so I want to come back to that because I think not only in terms of how you make, but how you live and how you experience the world all feels like one and the same thing which yeah. is really inspiring.
1: Yeah, it's, it's hard to separate different things and sometimes that can be a challenge, but actually not separating them can also be the joy of um, bits like that. And yeah, so I'm, what was the rest of your question? <laughs> my name's Paul, artist, and um, I'm at the moment, I'm actually just in my flat in London. And because lots of my work is bigger pieces that are in uh, sort of performances or films or installations, I work a lot, around those kind of bigger projects and then they often site-specific. So I don't actually have a studio, so I work from home when I'm mm-hmm. not doing those projects. And then when I'm doing a big project, I normally take full advantage of whatever space I'm given mm-hmm. or allowed to have, or you know get spaces where I can then make larger things for those specific times. And then everything else I'm drawing and making at home amongst where I live, amongst all my bits and bobs around me.
0: Do you have um, a collection of stuff, material stuff that you surround yourself with?
1: I do have a collection because I I find a lot of um, my work. I like to use things that are found, so I'm forever collecting things like fabrics and paints and odd odd bits that have been left over. And I I find it sometimes easier because there's so much choice in the world that if I was going to sit down and be like, oh, I need I need to buy some paper and I need to buy a Pencils, a very basic example. But I'm like, wow, there's so many pencils. I could spend like years going from shop to shop looking at wonderful <laughs> charcoal. But whilst I sort of limit myself weirdly by what I've got lying around or, you know, going from the car boot or even finding on the street, the same with fabric choices for costumes or things. I'm like, if I were going to a fabric shop, I get overwhelmed. Like there's so much, but if I'm like, what can I find that's been recycled or that someone's chucked out or like old neck curtains? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'll use these because then one of the choices is sort of, it's not that i'm not making choices but it sort of limits the impossibility of and i get to concentrate on the exciting bit which is the making not too many choices that i can get carried away with
0: yeah so is your do you order that stuff at home do you have like a system like a a library or is it just a big pile of stuff
1: in my mind it's a ordered system but to others it might seem like a giant pile of things and i have <laughs> i mean things like fabrics uh, and things i try and you know it's i don't have a lot of space so those things can fold up and it also led me to making a lot of work um where i used fabrics to paint on because then they can be folded up and then you can have things like backdrops and costumes and an entire performance then can fold up into a small suitcase or what can go under a bed or so it's not necessarily mm-hmm. going to take up a huge amount of space and storage and i can
0: yeah i love that because your work is so expansive and world building But I love the idea that it's like uh, it's it's a massivist approach that folds up and goes under the bed. I love it.
1: I think a (laughs) lot about in the past, maybe when there was sort of performance troops, or you know, you have the idea of like traveling from town to town, then unfolding your your cart or whatever, and having like tents and people jumping out. And it's still how I think of it. It's like sort of you know, you can the things around you. You know, you gather things, but also. You can pull things together and expand from a small area and although maybe a separate studio would be ideal in certain situ- situations um, at home is it works for me at sometimes
0: yeah but I think so many artists that I talk to and work with also need constraints in order to push the edges of things so I really like the fact that, firstly, you know that you can make from anything, anywhere, but actually you have to start somewhere. And so giving yourself that, those constraints in the first place, it seems uh, like it really works for you.
1: Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that I, I in the past, especially when I was you know just coming out from university and things, I knew that there was things that would ha- happen that were exciting and were creative, but I didn't know it. Well, I still don't know where they come from, but lots of the time I was like, well, they're just accidents. So I just have to rely on these random accidents. But now I've realized that I'm not really relying on accidents as it were, but I'm putting in all the framework and working hard on all of that. So you can build those um, those exciting things that you're not expecting. So it sort of was a change in my mindset being like before I was like, oh, well, hopefully I'll accidentally stumble upon something. But now I realize if you put enough work into all the bits around it, you can let the art happen freely and lead you in exciting places. So it was like a way of, I mean, I still like the idea of them being accidents, but uh, now I don't have to worry, oh, I hope there's going to be an accident. Or I hope <laughs> Now I can be like, I, I know that this will work because, and I can rely on that in a way. Yeah,
0: accidentally on purpose. Exactly. I like it. But also I think that's gold dust in a way what you've given us there, because the framework and the construction so that you're setting yourself up to make your best work, knowing what you need, what component parts need to be in play in order for you to have fun, make great work and enjoy the process.
1: That's Yeah, exactly right. And it's also um, a way of making that isn't um, uh, like a final product driven, which is I often find can be really hard and limit- limiting for myself because I, if I create like a end goal or product that I really want to adhere to from the beginning, then I always sort of either disappoint myself or I really like, like narrow it in trying to get that exact thing. Whilst if you just don't have sort of a final, final product in that way, it can, you can get led by the project project in different directions. And then all sorts of exciting things can happen that you wouldn't expect. So although like I sort of know what I want in the end, I find it can be very limiting to at the beginning, have already decided on a very specific outcome.
0: Yeah, I, that I talk to uh, artists a lot when they get in su- stuck in their head and they become illustrators of their own ideas. Yeah. And that's um, more in relationship to a design process than an art process where the process is the point, you know, that the something yeah. happens along that magical way. But I'm curious, how does that way of feeling your way through the ideas work when it comes to making ceramics because there's there's certain parameters there that are very specific isn't there
1: yeah I've really enjoyed that and I should say from the beginning that I work collaboratively with a ceramicist so and she has been a ceramicist for years and knows all the technical sides of it And I, not knowing, obviously I'm learning, but that wasn't necessarily my priority, the technical side. So together it's been so exciting because we both like have sort of, not opposite, but different views that come together and we both are constantly challenging each other. But yeah, that's been so interesting because there are certain timeframes and things that you can't get away from. You know, things have to, you know, and you don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but you have to wait like 12 hours, 24 hours for things to come out the kiln and having this like, wait in between things. And it's been quite interesting, yeah, thinking about other art projects and where you can just sort of have to leave, not leave something, but then come back to it later and have time away from it. You can't just constantly work on the same thing. But I have found working with clay, you can do really spontaneous and exciting things with a caveat, as long as you're working with someone who makes sure it doesn't (laughs) explode in the kiln or, like, um, knows all the technical... But it's been... What I think it's given me a freedom that, you know, she... Not that she's not like a uh, challenging, but in some ways she'll be like, oh well, that's not you know we, we're not supposed to do that. But I'm <laughs> I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm like, well, let's just try yeah. it. Let's just go for it. And I yeah find the those kind of that's the only. Sometimes the problem I have is I'm too eager to be do all the fun, spontaneous things that when I learn something that works really well, I'm like, well, I've done that once. (laughs) Let's try something else weird. And I'm like, actually, I should hone the skill once I've worked. We've together worked out something.
0: That's a very common thing with artists, isn't it? That new territories is the thing that's interesting to us and seeing what's possible is the thing that gets us excited and always wanting to learn the next thing. But I think you're right because what I've seen happening, unfolding in your ceramics is it's a perfect amalgamation of all of the things which we should come to, which is you are, as far as I can tell, you are obsessed by the face, characters and the body. And that comes out whatever material or medium you're using, there's some expression or interrogation, those things. And before we come to the process again on ceramics, I'm going What? why do you think you are so obsessed with the face and the metamorphosis?
1: Yeah, I think it's just, I'm just obsessed with people. And for me, nearly all art, however abstracted it gets, whatever, is always sort of um, in some way figurative or performative. even when I'm looking at things that maybe seem abstracted or clinical or whatever, I still see the human process behind stuff and how things are made. So immediately I'm building character. This is when I'm viewing other works and things. So I think for me, what I've always been fascinated with is people and how they present themselves, how they leave their mark, how they try and blend in or not blend in or how they're leaving like a impact on the world and, it's yeah, and, and some sort of legacy and things like that. So it's and it, I think throughout art, there's something amazing about things like self-portraiture, which where you can look at portraits from hundreds or even thousands of years ago, and you're having this like time travel moment because you're looking into the eyes or the face or the or the mark that someone else has made, and it's it really is like a magic. T- I really think it's like art's oh, this sort of time traveling between stories and yeah, I've got a bit. Off- well, maybe that. you
0: could uh, take us on a bit of time traveling now Paul. In terms of where did you grow up because so you grew up with artists, right?
1: Yeah, it's been I think it's an interesting because I grew up around my parents well I guess you'd call it more craft and we we're talking about difference between craft not but they carve stone so that oh. and lettering in stone so you would normally see it exa- like a for gravestones or if a building has been opened by someone that kind of lettering in stone. And so when I grew up, it was that's how I thought art was. And so for a long time, I think also you want to rebel against your parents. For a long time, I tried so hard to be really academic at school and the rest of my family didn't, you know, they're not like school achievers. So I was like, I'm going to really rebel by doing really well at school and getting like, I think I'm the first one to have any GCSEs or A levels or anything like that. And now I look back at it, I'm like, why why did I waste so much time just trying to do really well at these like, (laughs) I I, I don't think I learned anything exciting from it. I just learned how to do exams, which is like a a terrible skill, really, whilst the rest of my family were off sort of discovering about like, I see my younger brothers and things who were just sort of fascinated by their like own learning in a way. So I felt my learning weirdly was like impeded by school because I felt I knew exactly what I needed to do to learn enough to get the top mark or whatever but that meant I wasn't having any fun I wasn't directing my own learning and those are the things that in the last especially just in the last 10 years I've really found joy in just discovering stuff myself and not wondering you know for years like I'd pick up a book and be like oh this is what do i what am I meant to know about this what do I need to what does everyone think you know Yes. because ooh, I could write an essay without even reading a book most of the time because I knew exactly what you had to write or whatever and so I didn't have this weird joy in reading and it's taken me like 20 years to get over that so um so anyway.
0: interesting and so um your parents were both so, involved in that way and wh- where in the world were you growing yeah,
1: up in Cambridge, in Cambridge. Up. Um, yeah my mom's um originally from the Netherlands and my dad's British so it's yeah and we grew up in Cambridge and their workshop is below where we live, so okay. I grew up literally in a workshop.
0: And so, you had brothers as well?
1: Yeah, I so t- uh, yeah, two young brothers. So to me, it just it's weird because obviously, as a child, whatever situation you grew up in is normal to you. Yeah. So it only, I only, again, when going to school, you realize that it's you're quite different from everyone else's home life. And I got really, you know, I, I became obsessed with like trying to be more normal or whatever which i think again it's taken me years to shake off and i realized i was like why did i spend so much time and energy wanting to be like more rather than just being more true to how you know and embrace the situation i grew up in whether it was good good or not you know rather than fighting against it a lot so that's
0: that's a, a great bit of advice for us all there i think it's uh interesting to me paul because i grew up my teenage years i grew up in a craft center in uh, in Ironbridge, in uh, which is like rural sort of Shropshire, if you like, next to the river. And I went to do a public talk just recently and the, the host that was putting me up at their house, when I opened the porch, their Moors craft tiles, which are Victorian tiles, were adorning their floor. and uh, And I happened to mention that I'd grown up in this craft centre and they'd actually studied at the tile works where I grew up if you like it's a weird serendipitous moment but I know for me growing up surrounded by beardy weirdies you know as people used to call them you know or like it's one of those things when you're a teenager. I was a teenage goth grown up in this like you know um I guess hippie kind of place if you like and only realizing as you get older just the value in the fact that you know these people living their lives completely differently you know really just uh not really uh, abiding by any rules to be honest yeah. most of them law dodging in some shape or form but also but the spirit of creativity that creative endeavor and discovery and trying to suss something from either the material or the meaning that they're trying to produce Actually, obviously, now I spend all of my life <laughs> talking to people about the making process. And I think that's something I you mentioned, your brothers in the family too. Did they find themselves in the arts or in? Well,
1: practice? I mean, actually, because my, yeah, they're, they're basically in the family business, which is the stone carving. So I'm the only one who uh, escaped or well, <laughs> however, actually my brother's wife now is taking over the workshop from my mum. Well, she's, I mean, she'll never stop my mum will never stop running the Chipping
0: away at things. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's her, her whole life. But yeah, obviously it was started by my father who it's like a long lineage of workshop and that kind of having apprentices and teaching. Um, so it's like a thing that always goes on, but it's a very specific way of working as well. And for years and things, I thought I was really rebelling and I didn't want anything to do with, you know, the idea of when you're carving something in stone, the way it's done, it's all by hand and the same methods that have been used literally thousands of years, whether it's like the Romans or whoever, and nothing has changed at all. It's the same. I think the chisels are now made of some sort of super tungsten instead of whatever Mm -hmm. it would have been, But it's exactly the same, a hammer and a chisel. And also everything you, every single mark you make is sort of very permanent. It's going to last forever and you can't make a mistake. And it's sort of, there's something serious about putting stuff down in stone that's going to be there potentially not forever but for thousands of years so I think because of all that it led me much more into an idea of art that was more not necessarily ephemeral but things where the like a product or something solid in the world wasn't like necessarily the priority. Yeah and I
0: get more- that there's something in your work about that It there's always a dynamic movement in your work even this the drawn line on the ceramics that you make or in the book illustrations that you made you get a sense that you're just witnessing something in flux if you like and so I really get a sense from your work that there is um everything is connected to the next thing
1: yeah absolutely and the, the idea of like moving and having things that are more intuitive I mean these are all you know when I'm talking about stone being like some sort of monumental permanent thing. I mean, I obviously it can be used in lots of different ways and even and my parents' workshop has. But in my mind, especially when I was younger, it was like, oh, I want to do something opposite that's really like living and sort of vivacious or whatever and doesn't create more stuff necessarily in the world, however that works. But yeah, the idea of like a free intuitive line and something that, you know, comes like directly from you somehow, you know, all the stuff, like I was talking about before, when you've got all the, things built up so that you know that when something happens, the spontaneity can be something uh, exciting. And that's, again, you're not necessarily relying on these accidents, but everything's been built up. So I know that these movements can create something and things can come. And like even, you know, for everyone, drawing, it is really physical and it is a performance at some level, whether that's like, I mean, I always find it explicit in every artist's work, but there's been some sort of performance that has led to it. But for me, that bit's just as important. And I often think about a lot of artworks as private performances that then have a leftover, which not not a leftover in like a negative way, like a leftover old bit of dinner in the fridge, but like a leftover then in self becomes something else and leads on to other things.
0: Mm, I think yeah. there's a frisson in the lines that you create or the um the there's a a real capturing of a sense of energy or life in yeah life in movement life in a process I'm curious when did your fascination with experimenting with costume props and the body begin
1: I think again I think that's just my whole life and it's I especially recently I was looking at your old family albums and I'm just always dressed up differently or as something else and sometimes you know I dress up as Characters that I liked. And other times I was just saying, Oh, mum, what am I doing wearing this when everyone else is? And she's like, Oh, you just wanted to wear like this gown that you bought at the. We live next to a church, so it was constant tabletop sales. So you could go for like my pocket money was like 10p on like a blue ball gown. It was my favorite. And it was just yeah. all these kind of things that less- had a sort of look or yeah, I'm not really sure, <laughs> sure exactly. But I think it must have been just the idea of, I think. Also, it comes to when, you know, you were saying about having a family where one, it's very specific how you grow up. And then when you realize that, you know, not the whole outside world, but school and formal education is very different, then you're like set up in a uh, sort of dilemma between two different things. And it's hard as a child to either pick a side or what would have been best, obviously, is find a nice middle ground. But you always feel like it's either one against the other. So there's like a difficult way to I think that's why I'm obsessed with sort of like just looking at other people and stories and how how people operate in the world, because it yeah was always like a bit difficult for me maybe to work out, you mm-hmm. know whether I should you know adhere to some sort of more like free spirited thing or then go. So actually, I, I swung towards being this very like um, formal child, like like in school and trying to do everything by the book and again yeah following all the rules. So I'd get these <clears throat> top mark exams that. Haven't really meant anything to me, ever <laughs> but, but you know, they. I'm sure they look good on some. It felt like the thing to do, you know, when you're at school. So I don't know. Yeah, i was I'm like struck a,
0: by yeah. that you, that discipline. So there's something about your parents' discipline of the, you know, having a sustainable business of making is is no great. Uh, you know shouldn't underestimate what they succeeded as a as a business and making business and achieving that and being able to pass it down the line is pretty remarkable and there's a discipline to that. It strikes me that you took a discipline and you applied it firstly to formal education and yeah. disciplined yourself into that. but you also have a discipline now where that's sort of the determination and application and the kind of the grit that is required. Also strikes me you did find a middle ground for yourself because that creating your own intersection, if you like, between what mainstream society tells us or shares with us as the norms and your familial relationships and then finding somewhere in between those two things that is more yours, more you shaped. feels like you found that and you've created a world for yourself.
1: Yeah it's it's nice to hear that and it's also um it's yeah it's something i think about um a lot because sometimes especially when i'm doing these larger projects or in the act of creation i'm like of course i'm doing this there's no other option or things and then when you're in other lulls or moments you're like well what why you know why am i spending all my energy and time but i don't think i could do anything else this thing and i feel a lot from most you know artists or creatives i know now it's just because they literally they just have to do it and they can't really do anything else and whether they yeah you know, I've got people who just I think of the people I went to university with, and the ones who are artists now are the, because literally because they never stopped being artists whereas you know other people found they could do other things or do other things really well or do so I know yeah that's not exactly what you were um asking me, but uh,
0: so when did you move from academia? into um committing more full-time to being an artist
1: well when I was at sixth form I wanted to um go to study at university and I had always wanted to do something I was always into sort of the English type department but when I was sort of at, at you know a level GCSEs or whatever they were like well actually you're not very good at um English literature, which I was interested And I only got diagnosed as being dyslexic, which like a lot of creative, but much later. But at the time they were like, well, you're not good at that. So you have to do this English language instead of English literature. And that sort of put a downer on things for me. And then I really wanted, was trying to find like an academic niche that would work for me. And I was always being hugely into film and watching film. So at my sixth one, they were like, well, there's film studies, which is like English literature, but you're instead of the text being a book, which you would because it would take me like a year to read something if I really wanted to get into it so it wasn't very feasible for GCSE so I did film studies and then I thought wow this would be a great sort of academic subject it wasn't about making film or anything like that so that was my sort of trajectory and then I was going to well then I applied for university and I thought oh maybe I should do an art foundation just in case and I did luckily had this really amazing art foundation and Then I still tried to apply for an academic subject. And then I had like a year out and thought, no, I'm going to apply for art. This is silly to keep thinking that I want to do something academic. Yeah.
0: curious as to what films were you um, into at that time?
1: Well, it's strange because I I grew up without any television. And like, because my parents have a stone carving workshop, it's very, you know, it is old fashioned. They didn't. So the way that they lived, there wasn't, we didn't have like pop, music, we didn't have a TV, we didn't have, so I always everything I discovered, I discovered it like off my own back and sort of at the wrong time. So, you know, everyone was watching one thing and I'd somehow, you know, or everyone was listening to whatever was in the charts. And I just found, you know, like an old record or a CD. And it was like from 20 years ago. And I was like, <laughs> well, this is great, but obviously you couldn't talk to anyone about it. So it was, a uh, yeah, found, but um, yeah, so fil- with films, because we didn't have a TV, I think it sort of backfires. I think all parents out there, just give your kids a TV because you become really obsessed afterwards with watching anything on a screen because it wasn't part of daily life. So um, they, we had at the time an amazing cinema in Cambridge that had, um, you could get this like whatever it was, like a student or under, because I was under 16, like membership, which was really cheap. You could see like a film for a pound and I would go nearly every single night or not every, but like four or five nights. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, it's educational. So I would tell her that the films and but it was always older films. It was a picture house. Oh, okay. And it was also linked to the university at, in Cambridge. So if they showed um the film, any film courses there would show them and they would have introductions by the professors. And nice. loads of them also were unrated because, you know, they were like uh, prints, proper prints of the film that didn't have a new So I'd go and see things that were absolutely not appropriate. I remember, because one of the best things I saw was um, Jubilee by Derek Jarman, which to me is um, one of my favourites, and I think one of his best. I know lots of people maybe see it more, sort of, it's more punk and silly than, I don't know, but I still think it's one of the best. But I remember going to see that, and I must have been maybe like 14 or 15, and it's definitely an 18. And it had a brilliant talk before it, and I saw it, and then, yeah, I just was really grateful for those experiences and seeing odd you know, other odd films. I remember seeing an amazing Dutch film that I literally think, I think about it all the time and I've never really found it. I managed to find like a VHS recently, but called The Silence Around Christine, um, A Question of Silence. And it was just, it was like just seeing something so like different and wild. And I was like, wow, the way you can tell stories and the way you can, you know, what you can, you can do anything. Yeah. There's literally no, uh, yeah, there's nothing. There's no rules. There's no, yeah, there's no rules. There are
0: rules, but they're not the rules that you thought they were
1: exactly like being at home and then if I ever saw tv at someone's house it would be I don't know like (laughs) it, it wasn't as exciting and then going to the cinema was like um but it also sent me on a weird trajectory of thinking from quite a young age that I would never be able to really do films myself because I was always like wow it's such it's so separate it's like something absolutely magic and separate and it's like not something that I could ever do you know you'd have to You need all these skills, all these different things. And then slowly breaking apart those kind of things over the next years has led me to like where I am now, where I'm like, well, you can just do anything, but you just, you know, you just have to try it rather than thinking, oh, that's separate from me. And I think in art, a lot of people have that. They look at art and think that's somehow separate from who I am. And then I teach drawing as well. And a lot of people that, well, I can't draw. And it's the same thing. It's like somehow that that is not who you are when it actually... I mean, art and everything should be a reflection and part of everyone. And I feel yeah. it. So I think that
0: lots that. of people do that where they compare themselves to somebody else's like decades of experience. And they think because I can't be that straight away, then there's just no point in doing it. Yeah. And they forget the firstly, there's joy involved in the process of learning and making and secondly you only get to be that person if you make a load of shit stuff first you know so there's something in your um letting go of that formality of like the end result and that you know the the decades of the filmmaker and also giving it a shot because you move between um the ship of fools and kind of films with big collaborations to like doing makeup tutorials, which um, I must've watched a million of your makeup tutorials (laughs) where um, there's something about that um, taking any endeavor seriously that I really love in what you're doing, even when you're being playful and pushing the edges of something
1: I think it is, well, firstly, I think it's so important to be all the things, again, maybe this comes back to formal education, for everything that's sort of frowned upon, like unresolved, silly, ridiculous, like uh, spontaneous, all things that are very hard to be formally, I think, are the most important for artwork. But yeah, the I think the makeup tutorials, that was where I, I just... It was after university and I didn't have any space or, you know, like at university, you don't realize like how luxurious it is to have like, as I was at Chelsea, I had like a central London studio for three years and I could do whatever I wanted surrounded by really, really exciting my peers and the tutors as well. But I mean, maybe more importantly, the other peers and my artists around me. So then suddenly I was on my own and I was just like, oh, you know, like, what do I, I don't have, space and I don't have as much time and so I felt like the makeup tutorials there was something about the YouTube interface that just really spoke to me at a time where you can be doing something on your own um but then obviously there's someone else watching but they're sort of on their own as well so there's this weird thing where it's really public but also it's very one-to-one but I loved watching other people's things like makeup tutorials because not for the makeup but it was such like a conduit or you know that's the wrong word like a uh what maybe Conduit will be fine, for people to tell stories. So people who maybe wouldn't normally just have these like really through just doing simple actions while telling the stories, all these exciting things came out. So I just found it like a really great, um, like a sort of crossover. And that was like the beginning of me realizing that what I was doing whilst making films okay not like on some hollywood blockbuster level but those on a basic level are films and there's great quotes by i think now I'm going, Now this is when i'm gonna get things wrong. but like um uh where um oh goodness and he said like if when film is as cheap as pencil and paper then it will really become an art form that is a quote by uh um my brain's gone completely blank here but i'll get it to you in a minute yeah don't
0: worry we'll but I, it. it's, it's a really- good quote
1: when you can just start using things and you can be spontaneous with them and then these exciting things occur. Um, and then also Mike figures has a good book about like digital filmmaking and he's been someone who I've always found like a really interesting artist, filmmaker and about how, yeah, you just, you just need to do it and also just having the equipment on your hands and valuing the equipment as well, whatever it is, but yeah. having value for that and... Did you
0: ever see and like the films by Ulrika Ottinger?
1: Yeah, I have watched. Um, I've only seen a couple of them. And especially because when I was doing um, uh, the project for Charleston House, I was making a film that was it was commissioned for an exhibition uh, about the uh, anniversary of the book Orlando. Mm-hmm. And obviously Ulrika Ottinger has a film called Freak Orlando, which is also based on Orlando. So I was a bit worried about, I actually watched it after I'd done mine, but I, uh, because I was just like, oh no, if I watch it, then just start. It was the same with the brilliant Sally Potter Orlando. I was like, I can't, I've, I've it was a film I absolutely loved um, as a teenager. And I was like, I'm not going to rewatch this either, because I need to have a bit of a clear head. Although mine's very abstracted from it. Well, like Orita Ottinger's. But yeah, she has, I love the way, yeah, the costume, the getting together with sort of a collaboration, everyone coming together and making things. And also, the use of tableau vivant sort of style, which is quite something that I'm quite interested in.
0: Yeah, and also something about taking, treating the absurd with, again with that seriousness of intent, and then also treating the the seriousness, I suppose, with some absurdity. And you've spoken about silliness being an important factor in your work. I wonder if you say a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I think the the thing that I find fascinating and about being like human and things is that things are very complex and complicated and I find often like especially in the description of artwork people can be very specific or like very so oh this is a something artwork about this specific thing when the things that are make us human are things that are like at once beautiful and disgusting that sort of maybe we don't we really don't agree with but then bits we do and all of this makes things more exciting and I feel like when things are silly and then disturbing and then although obviously for every person you'll find the opposite maybe and you'll find things that I find silly really disturbing and yeah. the disturbing bit silly but I think having them all together gives something where it's like harder to pin down which is maybe challenging for an audience like even as myself as an audience I don't I want to be able to, maybe it comes back to education from school. like, I want to be able to like know what it's about and say, well, but actually the most exciting things are where everything is sort of out there and you don't know, and maybe you don't agree with it all, or you find things, I mean, I find that a lot with artworks that maybe I initially are find, I don't know, repulsive or just annoy me, but I can't stop thinking about them. And I realize there is a power to lots of different things and it's not always yeah.
0: yeah, I think there is there is a real um, power, as you say, about not rounding the edges off or like completing the circle for people, you know, so that there can be a strong intonation or a strong starting point, but actually something else happens in the making process where you yeah. get an extra layer that perhaps you hadn't been expecting and that opens up a portal for the audience to enter somehow.
1: Definitely. And also I think whether we like it or not, we're going to expose all sorts of things about yourself through art or through any social interactions. So sometimes, yeah, I just think it's best not to like narrow things down. And it's just, you know, lots of the time, I think I'm making art about one thing, but it will be about something else. And I see it a lot with students where I'm, if I like doing a, being a visiting lecture or something, and they'll be like, oh, this I'm making this thing about this very specific thing but I'm always thinking or trying to say It's like whatever you make all of those bits from you will be present in it so you know you can you know whether you want it to be about that specific thing or not all different parts of you will start to be present in it and maybe just make the work and then yeah it'll come in different amounts but I think it can be scary because there are within all of us there are bits maybe we don't want to expose or bits that you know, we see in other people and we dislike. So acknowledging that those are parts of you. What can... bits
0: What bits are you always trying to shake off, Paul?
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, or some sort of like control of everything. I know I talk a lot about the, I want the more, the freedom and things. And I think that's where I've learned more to set up and working collaboratively with other people has been really, really amazing. And I, because before, I don't know, in a way I'd wanted people to come and do specific things, but now I always want people to come and do their thing within within my but then at the same time I want it to be exactly what I want there's a weird like um yeah this control of uh what's going to happen and yeah I guess you just trust trusting other people but that's the yeah excitement of people bringing all sorts of different inputs and also acknowledging that other people will speak up for what, what they want and you don't have to be in control or you don't have to worry about everyone else and things but you you do
0: choose um often you collaborate with your friends and family yeah so what would you say are the sort of even if they're internally acknowledged um i guess rationale for selecting those people what would you say are the unspoken rules for you in in who you pick to collaborate with
1: it's not even unspoken i feel like there's sometimes it just works well and i think mainly as well a lot of the collaboration is In a weird way unspoken because i do feel that especially if you're doing performance things if you it well if it works in some ways for some people but if i start dictating very specific things it's very easy for other people to just copy what i've said whilst if you start working together and explaining or talking around the subject or talking about what could happen and things then there's much more freedom for people to come up with different things because my idea is often maybe not the best idea. Or if I say like, Oh, this character should say, I love you now. Or then they will say, I love you. But if I say, Oh, this character here, we're they're all just in this together and we don't know what's going on or whatever. They could say like a thousand different things to them and that could be exciting and unpredictable.
0: So but- could you give us an example of the last collaboration of kind of how did you get the, the action started, so to speak?
1: Well, I think for the like larger film works that I work on, I, um, I often do write a sort of outline of what I want to happen. So like the different scenes so that something will lead to the next. But it's only like an outline. So I'll explain to people, oh, this, this will happen. And then we'll work out how it happens. And a lot of the time I have a sort of tableau in mind, sometimes taken from things like paintings or existing artworks. I'll be like, look, I want it to look something like this. And we'll all get together into that scene. And then from that, the the action starts to happen. But also it's very collaborative, not just with the actors in it, but with people with the camera and the sound and everyone who's come along to work together to make something happen. There's something about when everyone's together trying to make something happen that gets really exciting. And it's really difficult as well. You know, there's lots of times when people... We obviously don't see eye to or we don't have a clue what's going on, but I think more, more and more it's those things that are actually quite exciting. So going so,
0: back to that framework of setting up a framework for exactly. something more uh, accidental, so yeah. accidentally on purpose. Yeah. So I'm curious that the people that you're picking, yeah. though, because you have a very specific aesthetic because you're an artist with your own um, style and way of uh seeing you've got a lens the way you look through I wonder what are the reoccurring characters that make an appearance in your work and the reoccurring kind of motifs I guess
1: yeah well that's yeah the recurring motifs is an interesting one because sometimes I don't realize them a lot but there is um I mean it's often about uh, there's often like a complex motif of power in in lots of them so there's always some characters which hold power or exert power over others and then it's not clear maybe if that's actually the other way around and I like things to be ambiguous and I find it interesting in visual artworks where we look at something and we're like oh that person's in control of this situation or not or that one so I feel that's like a sort of more psychological (laughs) motif that goes through a lot of the things and looks of dynamics group dynamics and obviously when we're working together in a group it's you know that sometimes the films I feel like they're part, you know, a some sort of amazing film and also part reality TV because we're working out together. You know, like a sort of Big Brother meets um, Hollywood blockbuster, trying t- to work out together like how this can work and how we can make the best of the situation as a group. So I think, yeah, the communicating, but finding ways to communicate with other people is always so uh, it's so interesting to me because I don't necessarily feel I'm good at communicating that way obviously I choose to be an artist because I feel like that's an amazing way of communicating but I don't always know what I'm communicating sometimes it's quite scary to hear back what what I've communicated but um yeah I feel like th- this way of and within the work there's often even we talk about you know ceramics and drawing and things it's like translating from one media to another is this way of constantly trying to communicate something then feel what comes back from it and then adjusting or recommunicating. and so that's often with the film and performances is that you get people together and you start to try and communicate what you want to say and you realize that maybe it doesn't work through words and then words come back to you maybe from someone and you realize that's another way of communicating and in my Yeah
0: I'm thinking about how you very often cuz you paint yourself and the characters yeah and there's certain lines and colourways that you put on people's faces thinking about that sort of ambiguity or androgynous or there's like, depending on which way somebody turns their face, they can hold completely different meaning. And that seems to be something that you're, you're constantly looking at thinking about that power subjugation thing, where sometimes the literary is two faces held in one person in, in whether you're, it's a 2d work that you've made or the film you're creating multiples of the same individual within the frame.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, exactly. And I also, often when I'm painting onto people, it, it is painting something else onto someone. Mm. And especially in the films and performances, I want this idea that everything's recognisable, but also not quite of this world. So everything, you know, it's not, a, it's not completely alien, but everything just moves slightly differently or everything... Has like the lines are slightly in the wrong place, but some of the the pictures I've literally just been painting lines from drawings just directly onto the body onto the costumes. sometimes their faces appear on the costumes and sometimes more abstractly in a sort of spot a more um intuitive way, and sometimes very deliberately sometimes people who are in the costumes, their faces appear on the costumes, and there's a more like deliberate but the idea of people being many different things. And you said about androgyny and things, and some it's almost not even androgyny. It's sort of and everyone is all these different characters at once and we can go between them. And in the performances, I always change up who plays the different characters. So people come and they are just different elements of different people at all times. I, I like
0: the way that you upend um, some of those traditional stereotypes or tropes and... So, for example, when you wear um, and get your characters to wear ridiculously high heels because it changes the way their body is or morphs mm. and things that might be perceived as super sexy in a traditional way suddenly don't seem sexy. They seem awkward or off somehow. And so and then other things that kind of look weird and a bit odd suddenly seem sexual. So there's something about like something posturing as something and then becoming something else and people undoing themselves in relationship to each other. But there's a kind of lightness of touch with what you do, which means that you can push the edges of people, but without actually taking the piss out of them or like being negative or you know poking fun at people in that sense where it can hold that lightness but without yeah without critiquing it to the point where you want to turn away
1: yeah it's a difficult like I think it comes back to the before when I was saying that I want everything to be everything at once so yeah things I I, I mean in, <clears throat> in life things are sexy and grotesque at the same time and that's like a a thing that happens a lot and the way people move is so fascinating. And the high heels did come out of some sort of like, it started as one thing, but then I noticed that especially when we were filming outdoors and we were in a Scottish Island, high heels, just no one moved. And they were started moving like sort of animals on the side because you were sinking into the ground. So it became something completely different. And it was like a taking something that's so sort of, I don't know, city and <laughs> dressed up to like something natural as well. There was a nice, uh, yeah nice awkward things I think it's nice when things are really awkward because (laughs) it exposes both sides that you were saying because if you sort of if you err on the side of sex you're err on the side of um disgusting or whatever you're taking a choice but being awkwardly balanced in between these things is always where I like things to be and it's it's interesting because when I'm making the work those questions all sort of melt away and I sometimes don't even realize it's just like, oh, this is definitely what should be happening. And we're all doing it together. And I'm like, this should happen. And then sometimes when I see things, I find myself like horrified by some of the stuff. And other <laughs> it are incredibly beautiful. Like, I'm like, wow, that's incredibly beautiful. I don't know how this happened. And the same with drawing, like lots of them. I'm like, oh, I don't know where these, like it, this horrific thing came out, but it's exciting because it did. And I find that in reactions of the work as well. Like the, the film that was at Charleston, It was a a long film and I didn't expect people necessarily to sit and watch the whole thing. But depending on what what bit of the film they saw, I had very different reactions from people. So some were like, that was absolutely disgusting because, you know, people came to visit and were really uh, like annoyed and upset by it. And other people found it incredibly beautiful. And there are both those things in it. And some people found the disgusting bits really beautiful. So it's exciting to know.
0: Paul, could you say a bit about um, the commission at Charleston and what Charleston is for those people who have never been there before? I just went this weekend. And so um, the context of it is really pertinent to you and your work, I think.
1: Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, it's Charleston House was where the Bloomsbury group of artists went, well, to um, avoid conscription in the war. I think is how the end, and it was. I mean, this is a side note, but it was interesting. My father was much older, and he was also well. He was a conscientious objector in the war, and so mm-hmm. didn't go to Charleston, but uh, uh, went and uh, to work in somewhere else in the country countryside as well. So it was interesting. I just felt like a connection to people who. I mean, it's interesting the idea of being a conscientious objector because it was very like negatively seen. But there's something about standing up, saying like, whatever anyone says, I I will not be in a position where I'm have to kill someone whatever yeah. the reasoning so it was in so i've really got off on a tangent no that's
0: on. a really it's a it's great um a great connection that you made yeah. for yourself as a as a commissioning context
1: yeah it was a it's interesting but yeah so they were sort of living there and living able to live sort of um freely and have their life where they could integrate the art and their life and their love lives and everything together in this, I I imagine it was very like intense environment. Um, But, and it's interesting as well, because now it's seen often, what had been seen as sort of like, you know, people would go there and it'd be like an interior's inspiration and look home and then go home and like paint a wall and stuff. But to imagine at the time, most people would have found what they were doing there, maybe unpalatable, these kind of, different relationships like gay straight whatever's going on and also you know just making all this kind of art that was maybe not as mainstream and now it's become like the epitome of like tasteful so it's so fascinating I love things like that where you see how things change and how things and I think with artists especially nowadays because taste seems to change a lot you see artists just doing their thing and they suddenly become in fashion and then out fashion. And if they keep doing their thing, they'll be back in fashion. But you see some people always try and follow the fashion and it always just slightly fails just because keep doing whatever you're doing. Oh my goodness, I've really gone off on a tangent. And they they built a new gallery space in Charleston House. And their first exhibition was based on the book Orlando by Virginia Woolf, whose sister lived in Charleston. And um, because it was the 90th anniversary of its publication. And the book itself is... Uh, it is a mad and silly book. In my probably people, <laughs> it is, I love it, and it just got it's, it, it's an extended love letter to her uh, lover at the time, Vita Sackville-West, as well. And the I mean, Vita's family was really upset with it because they could see easily see what she was getting at. But it's just a a rambling mad book with everything happening, and lots of it is quite horrible. And then it's really beautiful, and then it's like. It's, yeah, it's got everything in and there's it's really confusing. And so obviously I really loved it. And being dyslexic, it's a weird thing because I often find books like that easier for me to read because I feel like I don't have to keep up with anything. I'm just like going over and I'm just like, wow, all this stuff is happening and it might take me a long time to read it. And sometimes I can't remember, but I really know I had an amazing journey through something. And I like that a lot with art as well. It's not necessarily about... Maybe Orlando, the book is about lots of specifics for a lot of people, but for me, it was like this it's this exciting journey through all these images and odd things.
0: You talk about taking your collaborators on a journey with you, and I think you also take people on a journey through your work. And uh, I don't know if these are the right words, um, but they came to me as thinking about a kind of gestalt or Wunderkammer, you know, this idea of the entire thing, like the house at Charleston where there are painted objects, doors, walls, carpets. It's it's a lived experience that is a somatic response to the world as well as an intellectual response to the world. There's a sensorial, sensational way of experiencing each other and the world that we're moving through. So I I get that sense of you moving through your work, but there is such a thinking about that's like who's the artist? Because you're a drawing teacher, you'll know um, that always took a line for a walk.
1: Yeah, take a line for a walk. Is it was. But wasn't it Paul Clays? No, who's
0: Yeah, that? it might have been, yeah.
1: So oh, now this is going to show us
0: about that. Yeah, not... so don't worry. Do you know, that's what happens when you become immersed in the world. All these people in quotes kind of meld together. But you know that it feels like um, that's your work that if anybody entered through the film through the ceramics through the book through the i mean you've even painted the interiors of like restaurants um toilets and yeah. you get a sense of these characters kind of inhabiting these different spaces so i think there's there's something about that um joy of trying to embody a situation a scenario a uh, a space that we really get a sense of you kind of feeling your way through it which is really celebratory as well as uh pointing at the kind of bonkersness of life
1: yeah and i think it's also like ev- everything i'm making i'm bringing absolutely everything to it at that situation and so i, I always get incredibly like um tired sometimes ill after big projects because i can't mm-hmm. not give uh everything to everything so even if it's a tiny drawing I do feel like everything up to that moment has led to that thing. And I know it sounds like silly and, you know, there's, but it is, it is really, and especially with these films where I'm bringing all the people along for journey. And we often, you know, for lots of reasons, budget constraints, we're all like living together and working together. It's like 24 hours of intense, just living and breathing these characters. And I I nearly always film chronologically as well. So we're living through all these experiences together. And so as I was saying before as well, it's almost like the artwork is that. It's the time I'm making the thing. And, that, and then it took me a long time to square up the artworks that come afterwards with that because you have such an intense experience, even sounding a bit overblown, but even doing a drawing or doing the inside of the uh, loose for a restaurant, it's quite intense. And then afterwards I'm like, oh, now there is an artwork, which is very different from my experience of the artwork and the people who might have been involved in the making.
0: Yeah, Sorry. I was thinking back to the um, time element that you were talking about in experiencing the ceramics because I talk a lot to artists about a kind of boom and bust approach yeah. to making, you know, and and I get that you live through the work and the making and that process and maybe need to have a lie down and a glass of milk in a darkened room for like a few months afterwards, which I really understand. But there's something in that uh process of waiting and observing and editing and reflecting that you get through ceramics, you know, that where you're um, allowing the framework of that materiality or the process of that materiality and thinking about how that might also be um, brought into the filmmaking or the drawing or the making of costumes where there's that kind of zooming out and zooming back in again.
1: Yeah. It's like a, I think it's the, it's exactly like this constant or not constant, but this translation between the media that is so important. And the idea of how one thing then always leads to something. As soon as you're making something, it will lead to other bits you made. And they, although they are separate objects, a film and a ceramic, for me, they like one thing goes for another. And I found that I was making characters on the ceramics that then led to ideas for <clears throat> costumes or bits of writing, or I was writing things that then I started like, painting the people or making them and even making the ceramics it came from and the costumes and things is when I was heading more in the performance side of things it was at a time when I felt that there is a lot of stuff in the world and I was like I felt a pressure to make objects as an artist and I was like why why does the world need more stuff and then I sort of like hoodwinked or uh, conned myself by saying well if I make useful stuff then it doesn't count so that's why I was like oh these costumes well they're useful and I was making these big paintings that were backdrops so I was like well that's a backdrop it's it's useful and it gave me this I know it, sound, it probably sounds a bit weird but it gave me this weird freedom and the same with the ceramics I was painting on existing ceramics just because I wanted like visuals as part of like dinners as part of films and I was using existing ceramics and I was like well it'd be better if I could make everything and that led to like ones where I could yeah, you know, I, was, I was physically making the ceramics and working with someone who was making things in response to my drawings. So it always just and that led back to like different. So that came out of sort of like dinners and things within the films or within working and communally just eating together. So it's sort of like this weird idea of things being useful in my head. Although <laughs> from the outside world, well, probably lots of them aren't very useful. But it like helped me like keep going with these with these things, and one thing becomes another.
0: Yeah, I think being useful, that's something we used to talk a lot about at Grisdell Arts, which was a residency space that used to co-run in in the Lake District. But with your work, there's uh, a uh, 2D to 3D thing always going on, isn't there, where there's um, that the surface is always important and an agency in the surface. But where the two-dimensional suddenly gets pulled into the three-dimensional and and vice versa. So um I, I love the fact that your tableaus are like living tableaus and that your even your 2D works are speaking about some kind of three-dimensional um kind of voluptuous world that we might inhabit. Um but I'm thinking about Blowing the edges of things, you know, that, that seems to be something that you like to do, to push the edges of things, even when you give yourself those formal constraints, as we discussed. So I'm curious, what what are the new frontiers that are possible for you, Paul? What, what would you like to explore next?
1: Oh, God, that's so hard. But yeah, uh, yeah, blowing the voluptuous world was great. Um, <laughs> a great quote. Um, yeah, blowing the edges. I think it's just... In making art, I think the difficulty is having the time and the freedom to do things because, you know, we all have to like live and have our, you know, make money and just survive and do things. So I always want to be able to then do these like really elaborate projects. And a lot of that comes either through being commissioned to do something. And then also it's something about these deadlines as well, because there's so much going on in an artist's head or in my head or and physically in drawings and stuff. And sometimes just being given an uh, external deadline gives me this, like everything has to come together and it's like a sort of like nucleus for everything suddenly around me being dragged towards like a point. But I think, I mean, as to what's happening now, I'm working on a quite an exciting project for a museum in Belgium at the moment. And I'm trying to really bring together a lot of the elements in one piece. So I'm doing, it's a performance piece, but it has three uh, elements of we're talking about time and where things exist in time. So I'm, creating a film that will be shown in the park but it will also have a set that i'm building f- that will have <laughs> the film will be filmed around a set so that will exist as a sort of sculpture for the duration of the exhibition so that in itself has a time frame of 3 or 4 months and then the film itself will live like it says digitally will things live forever i don't know but the film will have a very long life and from the film i'll extrapolate a text that will then become a performance not like a re performance of the film necessarily but a performance that happens on that structure so that will ha- also have a very specific time frame of like sort of half an hour an hour and I think the idea of all these things existing as one artwork is how things exist in my mind so like there's 2D 3D there's a very alive bit with human bodies and then there's like these leftover mm-hmm. elements and things that maybe be more traditional artworks so I think yeah doing things like that is where I'm I'm very excited about those kind of Things where everything comes together in it's different.
0: And it, w- what would be the starting point for your research for that project?
1: Well, again, it's like all these things are like buzzing around in your head. But for this one, it's in a sculpture park, and so I looked at their archive and their collection there because I just was. I'm all, I'm a huge fan of art. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure most artists are, but, and I love looking at art and often. I find they're the best, you know, you can have responses that, and this is what I was talking about before, about things being, having different ways of communicating and in films and things, obviously there's a lot of verbal communication. I I have this big struggle in my performance as well, between script and communication that's like through image or through sound or through other types of communication. And often verbal communication maybe isn't the best way of communicating with people, which is why lots of art is so powerful to me um I, forgot I was is there saying. a
0: particular character or scenario or maybe one of the artworks in particular yeah. that you're riffing off
1: yeah so I've riffed I mean the whole thing I've created uh I've created like a little group of characters because they have to be recreated obviously in the film but also by performers that I'm finding locally as well so yeah I've just literally I've chosen uh six sculptures or well a few more but who I found even on a basic level, there was something intuitive that they just looked like they they led my brain onto something. Or some of them, I'd go off and like, oh, they have an interesting backstory. But most of the time, it was something almost a bit random. It was a bit difficult to explain because I kept realizing using the word random sounded really unprofessional. So that's why I had to be. Thinking, <laughs> it's more intuitive, and it was more. Uh, like spontaneous and like exciting. I still need to be better, find better words for that. But yeah, you just
0: like you liked it based on all of your um, yeah. The things yeah
1: at different moments there's like one sculpture that had it well it was a, a body lying down but it which I always love reclining nudes but the the sort of character was like incised onto the body rather than sort of carved with it so it was carved onto it and I thought it was you know I love drawing directly onto people and things so I was like well this is my a sort of such an interesting but I often find it's better to explain things to people through things like that in the Charleston house we had a a bit in the film where I knew it was going to be a sort of fight, love making, I didn't know what were wanted between two of the characters and I thought I can't explain to the person who's acting this in words because then you'll be, you know, just the two words I use then now, say something, but obviously there was there's the amazing Francis Bacon ones where there's these two figures sort of either wrestling or doing what, so I was like this is what I wanted to look like and that was so much uh, better for the outcome of the film rather than having to pinpoint it into like some sort of words that would be maybe yes. not i think it,
0: it what i'm getting a sense of is the um again is the essence of the action or the essence of something that you're trying to capture and so by showing that image which is of like two bodies wrestling but they're kind of blurry aren't they yeah. you get a sense of them in motion or like there's a tussle Or you know, and it could be good. It could be bad.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was violent, beautiful, and maybe sexual, and all these things at once. So it's that
0: space. There's like I think you you talked about it before, um, where the the film that you couldn't quite remember at first, the you know, or you couldn't find it again to find, but it had haunted you, and it feels like there's that um, that odd image that you're looking for that odd um, essence of something that leaves that imprint on someone's mind's eye somehow. And they might not be able to articulate it exactly, but it gave them a feeling of something.
1: Yeah, exactly that. And I feel like we're always trying to search for things like that. And as soon as we do communicate them, whether that is actually through any visual art or through especially words, it becomes something different or we've to- it's become a story or it's become something else. So, and I'm really interested about in that as well. Obviously that's mm. so exciting when things become something else. But it's always nice to know that there's something that exists like floating around that you you can't pinpoint or you can see it through artworks or through words, but you sort of have to always see, um, read between the lines. And I think that does, I mean, nearly all my work comes down to, the film I did, The Burning Baby, hmm. a lot of the idea about that was, the way we communicate ideas or things to different people and how that can work or not. And in it, we had a lot of the characters when they were speaking words, it was almost just like this sort of banality of words that can never describe. And there were many bits in the film where people broke down and they were then either screaming or shouting or trying other ways of communicating. And I think that's always the idea of words almost being these lies, but very beautiful ones. And the same with Mm. all art in a way, it's like a very beautiful lie and like what's hiding behind it yeah
0: yes a beautiful lie I like that and other ways of communicating I think that's a perfect way for us to uh, draw our conversation to an end Um, I'm curious as to um, how we can introduce people to your work but where would it be best for people to find more out about you Paul
1: but I know it's at the moment it's probably Instagram because I don't really have a good website and yeah, so on Instagram, I do post a lot of different work and things, and I I used to post a huge amount through my YouTube channel because I really found that I loved the way that that worked, and I think a lot has changed obviously since I was initially using YouTube and how people consume and use digital content. So I don't know if it's it used to be such like an egalitarian platform, and I I think I had rose tinted glasses. I was like everything is possible there, and people came across things when they didn't know what they were even looking for and you know you would stumble across stuff that was you know it could be anything and everyone was so I had this like utopian vision of YouTube that it wasn't to be but um, <laughs> yeah, still, um there's still plenty
0: know. to discover about Paul's work yeah. on YouTube so please do go and check it out and uh, thank you so much for helping us to read between the lines of your work Paul what an absolute pleasure and a treat thank you for joining us
1: thank you for having me
0: I admire Paul's awareness of the dualities within his work, where the grotesque and the beautiful coexist seamlessly. He establishes a clear creative framework while remaining open to the interpretations of his collaborators and the serendipity of mistakes and improvisation. His art forms an interconnected narrative, unfolding in successive chapters, with collaborators serving as troubadours in a theatrical ensemble. Paul continuously pushes boundaries, exploring new possibilities with materials and forms, recognising that control is an illusion, yet a valuable starting point. His courage to embrace difference reflects the diversity of human nature and the richness of our interactions. Paul epitomises the power of embracing uniqueness to create inspiring work infused with curiosity, generosity and joy please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time.